Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Mark Nepo. He is a poet and philosopher who has taught in the fields of poetry and spirituality for over 30 years. He's the author of 15 books, including the New York Times number one bestseller, The Book of Awakening. 7,000 Ways to Listen, uh, which won the 2012 Books for a Better Life Award, and The Exquisite Risk, which was cited by Spirituality and Practice as one of the best spiritual books of 2005. Mark has appeared several times with Oprah Winfrey on her Super Soul Sunday program on OWN TV, and he will be part of Oprah's upcoming The Life You Want Weekend Tour. We'll hear more about that later. Today, we're going to discuss his new book of spiritual inquiry, The Endless Practice, Becoming Who You Were Born to Be. Mark Nepo, welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's absolutely my pleasure. Mark, you mentioned in your book the 17th century Japanese Zen master Shido Bunan, who was a gatekeeper for many years until he awakened to the life of a poet. Do you think you were born to be a poet, and what awakened you to that life? Well, I think, uh, I, I think let me say it in this way, that I, I believe that each of us has a poet in our heart, and it manifests differently. And I think that each of us is born with an incredible gift if we can just find it and befriend it. You know, for me, it's the way of seeing the world through metaphor and being able to be in conversation and express that and and be in that space. But it could be many different things. And so when I say that the endless practice is becoming who we were born to be, I don't really mean it in terms of like, oh, you were born to be president of the United States, or you were born to be, you know, a, a famous whatever, you know. I, it's more that I feel that each of us has a light that we carry from birth, and we're encased, you know, in this human form and from the inner life coming out through the heart and through the river of experience wearing us from the outside that light's destiny is to join with the world and mm. that's becoming who we were born to be i was um really challenged to try and read your book in a week uh, because it 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 just begs to be dipped into and savored. There's just such richness, not only of ideas but of language, of metaphor. You you just want to go off into a reverie, and you have these kind of contemplation suggestions at the end of each chapter. So it was really quite cruel to have to try and, and rush through it. Well, thank now, you. <laughs> one of the things that um, I, I was curious about was that you came down with cancer at quite an early age, and you were very severely ill. Did that kind of shift you over onto the road of spirituality or deeper spirituality than you had before? Well, yes, and, and let me 
express it this way. You know, I was always, uh, I think I've always had the same world view, but I think that almost dying and still being here uh, did several things. And I would, you know, I'd like to say it was through some wisdom on my part, but really not. <laughs> and, um, and one was that, you know, my, I woke up on, this is, in, I'm 63 and this was in my mid-30s. And I woke up on the other side and my heart now served my mind and not the other way around. And I also woke up, you know, I was raised Jewish, I am Jewish, but I'm a student, I woke up on the other side of this journey, a student of all paths, because I was challenged by still being here to believe in everything. You know, I was blessed to have people from all faiths offer kindness and help, and, and so I was not, and still not, wise enough to know what worked and what didn't. So I landed back in life a little closer to everything, needing to believe in everything, and all my work these last 25 years, all my books, my teaching, is looking for the common center of all spiritual paths and for the unique gifts of each with, with an aim to help myself and others um, inhabit our own wisdom in a very personal and immediate way. Well, if there is one message in the world that is needed today, it is that one. Just so incredibly important and central to our future as humanity. So, what? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. What? What is the soul, in in your opinion? Um, did you actually uh, have an out of body or near death experience during your illness? How did you come to your view of the nature of the soul? Well, I think that I was you know, uh, clarified by almost dying. I don't know if I had an out-of-body or near-death experience, but the way that I would describe it is, you know, imagine that you're standing on a cliff and there's an immense view, and you lean over to see a little more, and you lean a little further. Well, I felt like cancer pushed me off the ledge. And the miracle was that I got put back on the ledge. I didn't die. But in that adrenaline rush as I was falling, I saw more than maybe I was supposed to. <laughs> and, and then I'm still here. And in that adrenaline rush, a lot of things were burned off of me. That is a lot. Uh, I woke with less of an ability to pretend. I woke with less ego. Now certainly I have, you know, I'm human every day. I have all, I struggle like everyone else with all the things that we do, whether it's pride and fear and, you know, all of, all of that. But I mean at a deeper level, not below the fluctuations of personality, I was blessed in this harsh journey to have left between inside and outside when I awoke. And so I had had new eyes 
And so my understanding of the soul is that each of us, each of us has something that's our own particular portion of universal spirit. And when I go deep enough into me, I find you. And when you go to the bottom in the truthful way to, of your experience, you touch into me because, yes, I can get stuck in the circumstances of my life if I don't go deep enough. I can get stuck in my own story. But when I can face what is mine to face and work with what I'm given, my particular piece of soul, of spirit, takes me to the bottom where I touch into the well of all spirit. So, yeah, that, that starts to speak to my understanding of the soul. And, and let me just say, that's where, when we touch that, that's where resilience starts to reveal itself. When we are thoroughly ourselves, and because we've been so thoroughly ourselves, we touch and we are supported by the buoyancy of all spirit. Hmm. Will you speak to the the human condition um, in all of its ramifications and manifestations? And you relate the myth of Sisyphus at the start of your book. How does that illustrate what you would call, I guess, the endless practice of living? Uh, could you say that again, Miriam? What's the question? Um, the, the myth of Sisyphus, you know, rolling the ball. Oh, yes, yes, Sisyphus. Thank you. Yeah, I, I have a hearing aid, so every once in a while I may need to ask you to repeat something, so thank you. So, yes, so the, the myth of Sisyphus, you know, this is in most of these stories, let's say, too, right up front, you know, myths began, I believe, in all cultures out of particular circumstances and situations and because they carried such meaning they became universal and they're passed down but we we have our own personal mythology in our own lives to recover but let's go back to sisyphus you know sisyphus sisyphus was a very harsh and cruel person he was a a, a really despicable king who was who created fear in everyone around him and who um really stole, created ways to heal everything he could from people who traveled through his kingdom. And so he was going to be punished by the God when, and so Zeus sent Thanatos, the face of death, to take Sisyphus to the underworld where he would need to essentially be in a, in, in a captivity. And Sisyphus was so clever that he outwitted Thanatos, and he uh, put him in the prison. So this so angered the gods that all, and now without death around, all people couldn't be relieved of their suffering and die, and no one could make sacrifices. And all the gods were very angry, and now collectively, they made life so miserable for Sisyphus that he begged to die and couldn't. And he had to release Thanatos to rebalance life. So what, what I imagine when I hear that story, what I write about is, we can also, that's half of the human story. But if we can imagine the opposite, 
If we can imagine that Sisyphus was his better self, that he was a kind, kind king who helped people along the way, and that the gods were so moved that they wanted to reward him. So if we go back to the other side of that, you know, we, we know that the punishment for Sisyphus through eternity was that he was to roll a rock up a hill endlessly, forever. That's a different kind of endless practice. <laughs> and, but if we imagine the other side, when we imagine the part where Sisyphus was a kind king, that he was given the task, the reward, to roll a ball of light up the hill, spreading kindness and warmth with each roll, and that he would do that forever. And so, you know, the, the truth about all these myths is that we are both of these. We are the dark Sisyphus and we are the light Sisyphus. We have the capacity to be cruel and impose fear, and we have this immense capacity to give of ourselves and to be kind and spread light. So what has struck me and what I learned from being with this is that we are often, you know, we go through our days and we, you know, we work the, the task and we love the light. If we could just get through the task and be in the light. And I think the real lesson is to love the task and work the light. Mm-hmm. And we can love what we're doing. It doesn't mean that things aren't tedious or that sometimes things are annoying. But when I can accept that, that this is part of what I have to do, I have to do the dishes to move through time. I have to pay the bills to move through time. And it doesn't glorify them or fool myself, that, you know. But, but when we can be where we are, things always return to that extra glow that loving the task reveal. Still, that can be very hard if you're stuck in a dead-end, repetitive, or, or even, um, you know, less than, than rewarding job. Um, how, do, how would you suggest that people find the light in that situation? Well, I think that this is a very important thing, you know. Once in a while, we're blessed that the work we do is with meaning. It it's not always so. Often all of us, at some point or another, are asked to both survive and thrive. So, you know, the finding the space in which our soul can breathe fully is our career. Where that happens, which might change, is our occupation. So, you know, I've had jobs throughout my life. Right now I'm blessed that I, you know, I can write and teach and speak full time. But certainly it wasn't that way always. And so I think that, you know, who we are, the soul just wants us to be as alive as possible. And through that we we find the work we're meant to do. But it doesn't mean that what we do to pay the rent will always have meaning. What has meaning is the integrity of heart that we bring to whatever situation we're in. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't mean that I don't, you know, doesn't mean that I have to pretend that if I'm doing something that doesn't 
really, you know, I'm doing it because this is the job I could find. Well, that's, that's fine. That's the truth of it. And we don't need to pretend or mask that truth. But how I move through that is what gives meaning. Mm-hmm. How I, yeah, that's what allows my heart to breathe. I suppose the analogy it's, is in uh, sportsmanship. It's not the end result. It's how you play the game. Well, yes, I think that I think that's very true, because the truth is, and I think this is, you know, I think almost dying has helped me with this is that we're not going anywhere. It doesn't mean that we can't help each other. I mean, I think, you know, we're we're not for all of our dreams and our ambitions and our goals. Yes, we can try to make the world in our time a better place. We can help each other along the way, but there's nowhere to go. Mm. Um, there is no there. There's only here. <laughs> and that's part of the endless practice is remember there's a thousand things every day pull us out of here to over there. And the part of the endless practice is always returning to here, always returning to where we are. Yes, there's such a temptation to feel that I will start living when I get to this point, when I have this kind of a job, when I have a partner, when I have a good um, house or whatever. And life goes by and you turn around and you haven't lived it. Now, you describe... Sorry, please go on. No, no, go go right ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to change the subject. If you had a comment coming back, please. Well, just that, just that, you know, we are all, regardless of the details, which are all very important, we're all challenged with these deeply ordinary, mystifying things. And that, and that is, you know, to live well in the face of death and to love well with the time we have. And nobody does it the same way, but everybody does it. And that's what an archetype is, which Carl Jung gave us that Mm -hmm. that understanding. But that's what an archetype is. Everyone goes through this, and no two people do it the same way. And And that is our charge, to live well and love well. And... And, and to be in conversation about what that even means. It reminds me of Rabbi Hillel, who said to the man who said, I will convert to Judaism if you can teach me the Bible while I stand on one foot. And, uh, he's, and he said, uh, basically the golden rule, um, don't do to others what you would not have them do to you. The rest is commentary so in a sense (laughs) what you've just said is the essence of living well and all the rest of your book is commentary mark you described uh practices why are practices important well practice practice is how we stay immersed and close to life 
Yes, I mean, one of the rewards, of course, the surface reward and very valuable reward for practice is that we get better at skills. But the real reward for practice is that we get so immersed that the moment of practice sometimes disperses into actual life itself. You know, practice is always for something. You know, people, athletes practice for the game, for the aliveness of the game. But when we, so when we practice, it's the immersion that brings us into the oneness of things. So let, let me share a very quick story and then a personal learning about practice. The story is that a monk is meditating in a temple. He's very experienced, and he know, and he hears this irritating scrubbing nearby, and he knows, okay, all the noises are part of the meditation, and you know he tries to not be disturbed, but he is. He's annoyed, and he can't concentrate. And he looks over, and across the way is another monk who is scrubbing the tiles of the temple floor. Well, he goes over, and he says, "What are you doing?" And without looking at him, he says, the monk who's scrubbing says, I'm scrubbing the tiles of the floor until they turn into a mirror. And the monk who was meditating says, you, you can't do that. It, they, it will never turn it. You can't scrub it into a mirror. And without looking at him, he says, any more than you can meditate to enlighten it. <laughs> and it, it doesn't mean that we don't practice doesn't mean that we don't meditate or that we don't scrub the tile, but mm -hmm. it's the immersion that makes us clear, not the tiles, that makes us clear. So, so let me share this personal story, which, you know, my father, who passed away last September at 93, and you know, he was a master woodworker, and he loved ships, and he built a sailboat, and he would make two-scale model sailboats of famous racing ships you get the blueprint and i remember as a boy sitting on the you know maybe 10 or 11 sitting on the basement steps and he didn't know i was watching him and he would be immersed for hours you know putting small you know small pulleys and small ropes into place on this model model sailboat and he taught me he, he didn't know he was teaching me and i didn't know i was learning and he taught me about the secret life of detail. So when he was that immersed, he was for the moment, he was in the place of everyone who ever built a boat in the history of the world. And he was in that stream. And when we can be that attentive and wholehearted and present in our love, we are in the moment of everyone who ever loved. And when we can feel and be, not drown in our pain, but attend our pain with that kind of wholehearted, holding nothing back. We suddenly are in the stream of everyone who's ever been hurting. And that company, as I mentioned earlier, now we are in the, the, the buoyancy of all of humanity, of all souls. And we are buoyed by it. We are lightened by it. We are made resilient by it. So that's the reward of practice beyond getting more skillful in the surface world. That kind of expansion of the heart where we feel 
at one with the, the, the stream of humanity who has engaged in that particular practice is so difficult to do. One of the things that we are challenged with is the fear of trusting, is fear in general. Tell us about the temptation of fear. How do we deal with that? Well, I think that, you know, this, the, and this hinges on, on you know, it's hard to do. We don't do it. We have, if we open our heart, you know, great love and great suffering will, suffering will bring us there. It's our resistance. And, yes, this couches around fear. Well, I think fear gets its power from not looking. Fear gets its power by us feeding it. It's very natural. Fear is something we will never be rid of. That's not the goal. The goal is to be in relationship with our fear so it is right-sized, so it's not running the show, so that the fear is in us and we're not in the fear drowning in it. And so I think this goes back to the, the deep but small step courage to look, just to look, however briefly, at what we're afraid of. Because I know in my own life that most of the things I'm afraid of, that they've already happened. If I'm hurting and I'm afraid of the pain, because I felt it, I'm, I'm already in pain. If I'm afraid that I'm going to lose someone, probably there's something in me that's already told me that they're already on their way. If I'm afraid that, you know, whatever it might be, we often, because the heart moves quicker than our mind. So, most of the time when we go to protect ourselves, we're keeping in rather than out <laughs> what, what, what we've been troubled by. And this is why the, the courage to simply lean in, you know, the word respect means to look again, to mm. inspect mm -hmm. again. So when we respect ourselves, when we respect our heart's attention, this helps to right-size our fear by, you know, the, the true purpose of fear is, of course, to, keep, to alert us to danger. But there's a difference between, I write about this in, in the Endless Practice, there's a difference between our actual ring of safety and the ring of fear we carry. So, you know, say that there's three feet around me that if something dangerous were to cross within three feet, then my true safety is threatened. But I keep my ring of fear where I think that line is, three extra feet, now that's six feet away from me. So part of our job, part of our practice of being human is to always bring our ring of fear and our ring of safety into accurate alignment because if we have more distance in our fear. If we treat our fear as, as if that's the real line that life can, cannot come closer than, then we keep life and the things that will heal us and help us farther away. So we're always trying to be safe, 
but you know, if I if my ring of fear is 10, 12 feet, I'm just using it as a way so we can understand it. If that's that far away, and then I wonder why I'm lonely, why no one can reach me, why I why life feels kind of I get numb because I can't because I'm keeping I'm insulating myself from being touchable. Yeah. So by leaning in, by looking again, we, we start to reduce that distance and be closer to life and to the resources of life. I was particularly taken by something that you wrote, that when we least expected what is in the way is the way. The broken door lets in the light, the broken heart lets in the world. Can you expand on that? Sure. I think this is one of the humbling teachers. This is why obstacles are teachers. And in the Hindu tradition, they know this well because they have their beautiful deity, Ganesh, or Ganesha, um, who is the provider and remover of obstacles. You know, you know we, we understandably, and then we're kind of miseducated to think that this is a code to live by, but we, we think, oh, if I could just get past this obstacle, then I'll be happy. If I can get over this sadness, then I'll be free. If I can, you know, tidy all this up and clean it up, then I can play. Well, life keeps telling us that it's all of one unity. Everything comes at us all together. You know, water, if I'm thirsty, I need to drink water. I can't ask for just the hydrogen and the oxygen because if you could pull it apart, it would no longer be water and it would stop being uh, quenching. And life is pain and joy and clarity and confusion and fear and certainty and everything. And we are asked to drink of it and to extract what's essential and discharge the rest. And it seems that whatever it is that we believe in that's larger than us, whatever name we give to it, life has been made just hard enough that we need each other so that it can ensure the journey of love. So all of this, all of this is inter- beautifully interwoven and inseparable, and so you know the mind, which is a great tool, but the mind by its nature tries to sort and prioritize. But the deepest meaning of life, the deepest experience of life comes from the heart, letting everything, absorbing everything and integrating it, not sorting it and separating it and over time over a lifetime i know for me i've been asked in the second half of my life uh to absorb and integrate more than to sort and separate (laughs) yes You, you talk about the courage not to waste our gifts what does it mean to have a gift Well, a gift is what we are born with a light. We are born with a spirit. And it manifests in everything we touch. But we have to find 
where we come alive the most. And through that aliveness, out it's earth. You know, Mechthild, who was a medieval female mystic in Germany in the Middle Ages, she said that, you know, birds do not fall from the sky and fish do not drown in water. That each creature must find its God-given element in which it can live. Now, for birds and fish and animals, it's pretty clear what their element is. But for human beings, part of our journey is that we have to discover what that element is. You know, we're the only creatures that if we don't open our hearts and be present, we can walk around like the walking dead. So, but we also, the majesty of spirit and the miracle is that in any moment, we can come back alive. You know, there's a small poem of mine called Practicing that goes like this. As a man in his last breath drops all he is carrying, each breath is a little death that can set us free. But yeah, at any moment, as hard as it seems, we can look again, respect the gift we were born with, and put down what's in the way once it's taught us what we need to learn. Why do you think you um, embarked on the, the role of the path of the poet? How, well, how did that touch your soul? You know, it, you know. Well, I think that I was I was born that way. I think that was my God-given element. Mm-hmm. I don't think I made a choice. I mean, I certainly made a choice whether to follow it or not, but I didn't choose it. You know, I was born even as a child. Now, as I look back, I had no language for it. I didn't know what it was. But the world, everything larger than us, God, Tao, whatever you want to call it, nature. The universe spoke to me through metaphor. So when I was alone, I was, even as a child, I was not alone. And I was always in conversation, listening to the things around me. And, you know, then uh, when I was in high school and, you know, the first woman I fell in love with, you know, broke up and with me and broke my heart, you know, another archetype. <laughs> um, and, you know, I didn't have any... I, I wasn't a loner. I had lots of acquaintances, but I didn't really have any real deep friendships until I went to college. So at that time, I started writing because of a broken heart. And as I started to heal, I realized, you know, I wasn't just talking to myself. I had begun, through the crack in my heart, a conversation with the universe. And so I, I stayed in conversation. And you know, the, the writing, the poetry is the trail of that conversation. It's how I stay centered, how I learn, how I stay grounded in the mystery. Mm-hmm. Even even this prose book, uh, The Endless Practice, is, is very poetic. Uh, I mean, you, 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 that's the way you think. That's the way you visualize it. Yeah, thank, thank you. Because I know that, you know, the publishers put them on 
notices again about sorting, right? I mean, mm -hmm. they put this book is poetry and that one is nonfiction and this one is spiritual inquiry. And to me, it's all a river of poetry. It's just poetry isn't about whether it's in stanzas or paragraphs. Poetry is the unexpected utterance of the soul. Poetry is the, the gift of, of vision and perception. And, and so it is the way I think, it's the way I breathe, it's the way I, uh, I try to, and this is what's important, all art, but especially the written word, the only things worth writing about are the things that can't be said. Mm. And yeah, and so we just, you know, with the Buddha, you know, one of the many beautiful stories about Buddha is he was talking to his students, his disciples, and um, although he wouldn't have called them disciples, but, um, but you know, he said, my teaching, um, you know, they're like fingers pointing to the moon. Don't get distracted by my fingers. Mm -hmm. It's the moon. It's the moon. And, you know, for all that I put into these books, or all that any artist puts into what they're creating, they're all fingers pointing to the moon. They're all, you know, I want the book to point you to what, what it's trying to reflect and briefly bring into view um, so that you can have your own relationship to it. And is that your hope for this book, that the readers will, will connect with the moon, if you will? Well, I hope, yes. My hope for, for all my books and for the time that I'm blessed to have with people in person my, uh, is to help keep companies so that people can befriend their gifts and inhabit their own wisdom. Mm -hmm. You know, we live, in, we live in a culture, certainly we can, you know, we can learn from each other. There have always been teachers, there have always been students, you know, but, but a true teacher points you back to your own direct experience. We live in a culture, uh, a cult of expertise. And, not, you know, the truth is, um, and, and I, uh, well, there's a, there's actually a chapter in 7,000 Ways to Listen that I, explore, I looked into the history of, of what a sage is. And the word sage actually was originally a verb that meant to chase. To what? Isn't that amazing? Taste. Chase? Yes, to taste. Ah. P-A-S-T-E, yeah. So that's amazing. That's amazing. So this, this tells us that, that wisdom has always come from the direct tasting of life. And actually, the first time that the word sage appears is in the Hindu tradition when the seven sages um, are referred to, but they were Vedic poets, and they're not named, they're anonymous, whose work was to record the hymns of the universe. And so now it's not until Socrates in ancient Greece that we have the first naming of sages. He named the seven sages of ancient Greece. 
actual people. And as soon as Socrates does that, which is kind of comical, but very instructive, what starts to happen? Everybody stops tasting directly, and they all start arguing about, well, why seven? I, I thought it would be ten. <laughs> or, well, you left out Harry. How could you leave Harry out? And so as soon as we get one step away from the direct tasting, the verb turns into a noun. Mm. And this is very instructive about how do we move through fear when in the endless journey of fear, we stay a verb when we become a noun. We keep mm. seeing and feeling and hearing and tasting, and this is the role of compassion, the heart keeps loving loving because even though the life of feelings is difficult at times it's only moving through the life of feeling that we enter into compassion and compassion is not just love for another's journey the bond of compassion gives us an experience of oneness that is strengthening well, I can certainly understand how uh, Oprah Winfrey was so taken with your work. Um, tell us about this weekend you're doing with her. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's a blessing. And, well, Oprah, which is only Oprah could do, I think, in our time, she is trying to take this conversation, this, this conversation, the type of conversation we're having, the conversation that's in the book, it's in not just my work, but other people's work, and trying to move it out in the world. So she has said, let's try it. Let's, let's have this conversation where rock concerts happen. Let's have it in arenas. And, and because she believed, in, and it's appearing so, that people want this conversation. And these places are being sold out. And so I've been kindly asked to be one of five teachers that will join her. And there's an eight-city tour, and I'm going to be a part of four of the cities, um, where we will be you know, talking about all these things uh, with people live on how to live the life you want. And implicit in that is that you already have it. You already have that gift, that light. Everybody does. And how do we help each other be who we are, be who we're born to be? Mm. Th that is just... Uh such a wonderful commentary on the conscious awakening that's happening. I mean, that not only that Oprah would be doing it, but that it would be sold out in all of these venues. So you're, you're yeah. also involved in a, um, a film, if I understand correctly. Yes, yes. This, I think this is another example of, of the consciousness that's awakening around the world. There's this wonderful film, The Power of the Heart, um, that is made by the director Drew Harriet and Baptiste de Pop. Um, and uh, it's coming out October 7th, and I was um, very blessed to be a part of that film, uh, along with many other teachers. Um, and it's very, I've seen, uh, I haven't seen the whole thing yet, but I've seen parts of it, and it's 
very compelling and uh, empowering in a deep way. Uh, it's exciting that this is also happening at this time. That's fantastic. And I think at the same time you have this um, CD set coming out with Sounds True. Yes, I know, you know, you work for years and never dream that all these things would happen in the same season. <laughs> um, you know, but yes, I, I have just in the next week or two, I have recorded a six CD box set with Sounds True, a wonderful, wonderful company. Um, and it's called Reduced to Joy, and it's the journey from our head to our heart, in which I use the poems from my book of poems, Reduced to Joy, and from some other books, to chart a journey where the poems are the teachers. I, each track is talking about how the poem appeared, I read the poem, and then I unpack the teaching of the poem in a way that speaks to our common journey. And it was mm-hmm. really, I learned a great deal by doing this. Um, and it was a real wonderful experience. I'm very excited that it's coming out. Well, it's interesting that one of the common themes is the heart. Uh, that was the theme of the um, the movie as well. Um, Absolutely. Can you kind of put into an, a beautiful nutshell um, what is this, the role of the heart in this time? The heart, the heart is the strongest muscle we have. The heart is, you know, how fish have a gill that allows them to breathe by extracting the oxygen what's essential. That our heart is our gill. And through inhabiting our heart, we get to feel eternity. Through the mind, we can glimpse and grasp eternity, but it's through the heart that we get to feel not only our life, but all other life. And the kind of spiritual electricity of that, whenever it happens, is makes us glow, makes us fully alive. And that's what we're here to do, to be fully alive. Mm. Yeah. Well, this has been um, a wonderful experience, Mark. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I wish you uh, great success and enjoyment in in that uh, tour with Oprah and like a modern day Chautauqua. Uh, I think it's it's exciting to have this happening. And uh, best of luck with your book, The Endless Practice, and the CD set and the movie. Mark Nepo, a man of many parts, a poet and philosopher. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you, and thank, thank you for the work you're doing, too. This is a wonderful, deep space to be in together. Many blessings. All the best to you, too. Thank you. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Namely me. Has the universe been trying to get your attention? What will it take for you to start to listen? 
I'm Miriam Knight, and I interviewed 37 individuals from all walks of life for our book, What Wags the World? Tales of Conscious Awakening. In it, they describe the cosmic two-by-fours that changed their lives, and their answers may make you rethink your own ideas about the nature of reality. Coming in September, but available for pre-order now on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, or ask for it at your local bookstore. What Wags the World? Tales of Conscious Awakening. Seriously, if you like the kind of material that we cover here on New Consciousness Review, you are really going to love this book, if I do say so myself. What Wags the World? Tales of Conscious Awakening. Now, next week, our guest is going to be Piero Ferrucci. His book is a very appropriate book for these times of chaos and confusion. It's called Your Inner Will, Finding Personal Strength in Critical Times. And now we're going to close with our track of the week called Room for Everyone from Up With People.
for everyone by Up With People. Up With People is a global education organization that aims to bring the world together through service and music. The unique combination of international travel, service learning, leadership development, and performing arts offers students an unparalleled experience and a pathway to make a difference in the world, one community at a time. They make fantastic music, and you can find out more about them at upwithpeople.org. Do yourself a favor and check them out. Well, that's more or less our show for today. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you'll join us next week. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.